Welcome to Publishing Dribble, the podcast that breaks the rules and helps you kickstart your career as a successful nonfiction author and entrepreneur. I'm your host, Melina Benson. Ray Edwards is a communication strategist and copywriter for some of the most powerful voices in leadership and business. Some of his clients include Tony Robbins and Jeff Walker. Look them up, people, if you don't know, know who they are. These are guys you need to know. And many more people. Ray teaches thought leaders, entrepreneurs, and business owners how to write the words that sell their products, services, and ideas. This happens primarily within the Copywriting Academy, the Certified Direct Response Copywriter Program, and the Ray Edwards Copywriting Agency. He's also written and published several books, including How to Write Copy That Sells, which is one of my personal favorites and that I talked about on multiple occasions, including on this podcast. <laughs> he has also previously been a guest on this show. Welcome back, Ray. Thank you so much. I'm so happy to be here. Yeah, me too. So, Ray, what drives you in your business? What drives me in my business? My purpose here on earth drives me in my business. Let's start at the broadest possible definition. Why am I here? Why are any of us here? What are we here to do? I believe we're here, and I'll touch on this maybe later if you want to, or maybe now if you want me to. I believe we're here to solve problems for other people. And I believe as entrepreneurs, if you're called to be an entrepreneur, whatever your spiritual background is, if you feel called to entrepreneurship, to business, then you know you are called. It's like it's not something you decided on. It's not something you were trained into. It's something that is inside you that says, I want to go make something and I want to make it for profit. And we get all twisted up about that because we get wrong ideas in our head about what it means to be profitable. But I think it's good if you can solve problems and you can do that for a profit. The question is, here's what drives me these days. How big is the problem you're solving? If the problem you're solving is how to pay your bills, it's not big enough. It's not a big enough problem. If the problem you're solving is trying to pay off your debt, it's not big enough. That's a, that's a small problem. It doesn't seem small to you. And that's the problem. That doesn't seem like a small problem. In fact, I was making some notes. This is something I was writing yesterday. I'm just going to read it to you because I think it's that good. Yeah. We only experience problems of the size and scope. Now, listen carefully. We, we only experience problems of the size and scope at which we have the capacity to create them. The implication seems to be you should seek to address bigger problems. Problems so big, they tend to not be personal. Become other-focused, and personal problems may evaporate entirely before you are even required to experience them, as the large-scale problems require more capacity from us as individuals. This means we don't have time to create self-focused problems as we're engaged in solving bigger ones. An additional bonus effect is that developing a capacity to solve the larger problems means you've also exponentially increased your ability to prevent smaller personal problems before they even occur and you develop more bountiful reserves of general problem-solving resourcefulness. And so personal problems, which do arise, they do happen, tend to seem less difficult. 
And if that happens for you, when it happens for you, it's worth noting that life did not magically get easier. You got better because you were solving bigger problems. That's what drives me. And then bridging over to words. So what you to make that change in people, to persuade people to make that kind of change and think that differently, you use words. So I know that one of your, oh, your probably your overall method is to help people find the words that will change feelings so that they will change their actions. Can you talk a little bit more about that? There's many people who teach something like this. This is a model of psychology based on neurology, how our brains and bodies actually work. And it starts with asking the question, why do people do what they do? And I believe the reason they do what they do is because of words. And what I mean by that is it all starts with language. So think about how, how your life works. You, you encounter something in the external world. You encounter a person. A person walks in the door and you don't know who they are, you see them, and the first thing that happens in your, that's a fact. Somebody just walked in the door, you don't know who they are. That's reality. In your brain, you're saying either, oh, wonderful, I have a new guest and a new friend to talk to, or you're saying, who the heck is this and where's my gun? Somebody's invaded my home. Where's my baseball bat? Should I be afraid? Your brain is cycling through, what is this and what does it mean? So what this is, is a stranger walks through my door. What does it mean? Am I under threat? Am I under blessing? Is this person, what does it mean? So that's when you start interpreting reality and you do it in your head with words, because we all think in words. Words are the, words are the handles that we hang on to ideas with. So we've been taught from the earliest possible age to think about things in terms of language. And there's complexities. There are people who who can't hear, for instance, who've never been able to hear, they have to learn a new way of communicating. They're still thinking in their own version of words or language. They have ways they wrangle their thoughts into a systematic interpretation of reality, and that determines how we feel. If I see the person standing in, in the doorway of my, of my office, and I've never met them before, I think, oh, a new friend. And I'm flooded with neurochemicals that because the thought I just thought are released in my brain, in my nervous system, makes me feel warm and welcoming and want to get to know this person and open and, and puts a smile on my face. I go over and greet them. Or if the thought I have is I'm about to be attacked, I'm here alone. There's nobody here to help me. Then different neurochemicals get released in my body. Those are the fight or flight chemicals, cortisol, adrenaline. I'm ready to fight this person, run from them, or I'm going to freeze up. And which interpretation is right? It remains to be seen. But most of the situations we face in life are not like that. They feel like that. Like we can get, so think about this. If you're looking at your phone, you get a text and it says it's from uh, your bank. Now that could be anything. It could be somebody just made a $100,000 deposit into your account and the bank wants to let you know we're going to hold that for a couple of days to make sure it clears. That'd be good news, right? You'd be very excited. Or it could be a check bounced, then you'd be upset. Most of us make up our mind what the message from our bank means before we even know. We get a call from a family member, and we think, like, it's, it's from your mom. 
And it might be, oh my gosh, something happened. Dad's been in an accident. He's been hurt. Uh, maybe he went to the hospital. Maybe he had a heart attack. You start thinking these terrible thoughts, these horrible feelings. So my point is, we're always interpreting what things mean in words. It floods our system with neurochemicals. And our, our behavior is driven by our emotions. We like to tell ourselves that we think things through, and then we decide what to do. That's not how our brains work. It's been proven time and time again that most of the time, your behavior is driven by your emotions first. And you might ask how they prove it. Well, do some, do some Googling, go through Pub, PubMed and look at some of the medical studies where they've studied people who have a severed cerebral, the, the two sides of the brain, the connection is severed, so they can't communicate. They can use functional MRIs and they watch to see if they put a cookie on the table, if the person eats it, did they just emotionally eat it or did they logically eat it? It's always emotion first. And the person will swear. They'll say, well, I thought you must have left that cookie for a reason. I haven't had lunch. I'm kind of feeling like I have low blood sugar. So I decided to go ahead and have the cookie. That's not what happened. What happened was cookie. Person eats the cookie at and they come up with the explanation later. And we know that buying decisions as marketers and copywriters, we know that we've been taught that buying decisions are made emotionally first, and then we rationalize the decision. And it's true. And now we know it through neuroscience. There's reality, then there's our interpretation of reality, the words we use to describe what we're seeing. Then there's the flood of emotions that come as, as a result of those thoughts we have in our head, thoughts in the form of words. We get the emotions. The emotions control our behavior. Our behavior controls the outcome we get. That's reality. And it's a vicious circle or a virtuous cycle. One of the two. We get to decide because we of all the animals, only we, as far as we know, have the ability to get the stimulus, the reality. Something happens outside. Then we have the response, the thought about it. It creates the emotion. We, you and I, have the power to pause. Stimulus happens, we pause, we take a breath, we ask, what does this mean? I'm under threat. Are you really under threat? How do you know that? It doesn't seem like you're under threat. Should you maybe take this less seriously? Should you find out? Should you be curious instead of being afraid? We have the ability to pause, change our response, and thus words change our emotions and change our world. We have a saying at my company. Change your words, change your world. It's true. So how do we embrace this in writing? In particular, in mm. nonfiction, in sales copy, in business context? Yes. So in my copywriting book and in my course and all my coaching programs, we teach something called the pastor method. And it's not about being a preacher. It's about being a shepherd. This was the original meaning of the word pastor was. And the first letter... P stands for person, problem, and pain. Those are the first three things you need to know about. So you might say, well, I'm not talking about writing sales copy. I'm talking about writing an article or a podcast or a speech. Well, you're still speaking to people. So who are you talking to? What is their problem? Because that's what they want to hear you talk about. You might say, I don't want to talk about their problems. Then you're talking to the wrong crowd of people. You need to be interested in who you're talking to. And what their problems are, what's their chief problem, what's the biggest problem they're facing, and then what's the pain that problem causes? How do they experience that pain? How do they feel the pain? 
because we might think they ought to feel it in one way, but they feel it in another way. Like if I'm writing to people who need to get healthier, I'm writing about the perils of being overweight. I might think, well, you need to be concerned about this because of your blood sugar, because of your cholesterol, because of your cardiovascular health. Those are logical reasons I think you should be concerned about it. The person I'm speaking to, though, is concerned about it. They're concerned because they don't like how they look when they get out of the shower and look at themselves naked in the mirror. They're like, oh, what happened to me? I got all stressed out. I got to tighten up. So they're feeling a different pain. So you need to address the pain in the way they're feeling it. So the first steps are get to know who you're talking or writing to, what their biggest problem is they're facing, and how they feel about it, and articulate that so well that their response is, oh, man, you really get me. You understand me. Now, what do I do about it? They lean in. That's where you can start talking to them about what to do next. And you, you can begin changing their minds and their feelings. And it's so important. You said you use words to change feelings. That's such an important distinction you made. You understand something that most people who interview me don't even get this. They, they haven't thought about it deeply enough. It's, it's the feelings that matter. You have to touch people with their feelings first, then you can move them to rationalize the decision you want them to make, whether it's to buy something or buy into an idea or vote for a certain candidate or whatever you're trying to convince them of. Donate to a certain charity because the feelings drive it. And the difference between sales and marketing is something we should talk about briefly because marketing is not selling. Marketing is communicating to shift mindsets, to oh. change the way people think about things. Oh, that's you're speaking my language, free. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I mean, that's what's so great about you and your work. You understand this. Yes. Selling is when you eventually go back to those people that you've been talking to for a long period of time. You've shifted them so you're all in the same mindset. And you can say, by the way, here's something people like us are going to want. Because as Seth Godin says, people like us do things like this. Mm -hmm. That's how you sell. It's the easiest way to sell. The hard way is to knock on somebody's door and say, would you like to buy a vacuum cleaner? Yeah. They weren't thinking about a vacuum cleaner. They didn't know yeah. they needed one. They don't know who you are. They don't want you coming in their house. They don't want you here with that weird thing you're carrying. They don't want any part of it. I, I want I want to just say to the listeners that if you want to know the rest of the pastor framework, this is the uh, how to write copy that sells, isn't that the title? Yeah, yes, how to write copy that sells book. It 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 includes all of that framework, and it's also what we talked about in the previous episode the last time you were a guest here. So I I can include a, a link to that episode in the show notes. Uh, so if you want to dive more into that, what I'd like to shift a little bit to here is. Uh, so one, how do you how do you then get to understand those feelings that you are writing to uh, to change? Well, that's a good question. It's called empathy, <laughs> and how do we how do we do empathy? Let me tell you what empathy is not. Empathy is not going in and picking out a few words somebody uses very often and shooting those words back at them. Because if they keep saying overwhelmed, you keep talking about, well, I know you're overwhelmed. It can be overwhelming to be overwhelmed. Some people are overwhelmed because of the overwhelmingness of the world. That's not empathy. I'm exaggerating for effect, but I had a, a therapist who, yes, I, I do therapy. I think everybody 
might benefit from thinking about doing it. Because what is therapy? It's what they didn't teach you in school about how to get along with other human beings. Um, just saying. So anyway, my therapist told me, here's how you do empathy, Ray. Point your eyes at the person you're talking to. Stop talking and listen. Until they're finished talking. And when they're finished talking, say back to them the core meaning of what they just said to you. Say it so clearly that their response will be, you understand it better than even I do. How did you know? What that means is when you're listening to people, you must stop preparing your response. You must stop thinking about your argument, how you're going to change their mind. You must stop thinking, oh, you're wrong, and I can't wait till you shut up so I can tell you why you're wrong. You just listen with one goal and one goal only, to understand. Stephen Covey said in his book, The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, seek first to understand, then to be understood. And to understand, to know you understand, you need to be able to repeat back to them the meaning of what, not just the words, because some of us are good at picking up the words and spewing them back at people. Don't do that. Use different words that describe their pain, what they're trying to communicate to you, better than they themselves described it, not as a way of winning a contest, but as a way of winning their trust. That's empathy. Mm. Now, that's a good segue into talking about uh, the last time we met in San Diego, you talked about Clarice Scribe, how to use artificial intelligence for writing. How do you bring what you just said into, how do you bridge that to using artificial intelligence? Oh my gosh, I've got, I'm so glad you asked this. I've gotten so much flack from my, my wholehearted, enthusiastic endorsement of AI. People are, so many people are like, Ray, this is the destruction of writers. It's the destruction of artists. They, they don't need us anymore. It's going to make every book and everything that's written mediocre and crappy and nobody's going to know the difference. And Blah, blah, wah, wah, wah. Somebody call the wambulance for crying out loud. It's, <laughs> it's, it's a tool, people. It's a tool. And here's what I believe. I could be wrong, first of all. Let me just say that. I have been in the past. I don't think I am, but I could be. Um, I believe it's a tool that's going to enable really good writers, those of us who care about the craft, it's making us better. And it's making us faster. And speed is not the number one criteria in writing anything, but it is important. It is important. I have for the longest time fiddled around with writing fiction, but I didn't have time to really do it wholeheartedly, or so I told myself. I was too busy writing business stuff. And then along comes AI, and I find so much of what I do in the business can be done with the help of AI, not done by AI. So let's start with that. Start with this. The way I write copy now versus the way I wrote it in the past. The actual steps have not changed. I start with the customer, the person to whom I'm writing, the person, the problem, the pain, amplifying the consequences of not solving the problem, talking to their aspirations, telling them a story, those steps, are the same. What has changed is 
what used to take me a week or two of research to construct the avatar to whom I'm writing, I can now do in an hour or two this afternoon using AI. I still have to be the one who has the big idea. I still have to be the one who identifies, well, who is the market for this? Who am I writing to? I still have to be the one to give AI the directions about where do you go look to find this information? But then I have it compile all the different pieces of data that I need to build an avatar. And I ask AI, build me an avatar of my person I'm writing to, give them a name, give me their age, give me details about their life. All the stuff I used to talk about doing, I had a, a meditation exercise that I'd have people go through to start picking these things up. Now I have AI do it. It takes AI like three minutes, it's done. So it speeds me up. Then I may take my big ideas. I have overarching ideas about how the pieces of copy, how they need, how they need to flow, what my big idea of the, the premise of the story is. I put those into AI, have it generate a rough first draft, and I go through and rewrite everything myself. So I'm still writing the copy, but it's, it's like it sped me up by a factor of 10. Now, I am answering your question, I promise. Um, <laughs> so like with fiction, um, I began thinking about, well, how does this work with fiction? I started thinking about the complexities of plotting a novel, because that's what I want to write. Of course, I'm not, not going to start with short stories or poems. For crying out loud, there's no challenge oh. there. <laughs> all right, all right, a hundred thousand word novel. Yeah. Then I thought, no, I'm going to write an eight book series, and so I began to use AI to, to lay out plot lines using classic storytelling frameworks, like the hero's journey, for instance. Uh, there's many others. It's fascinating, and I just completed my first novel this past weekend. It was my second novel. My first one took me several years to write. This one took me several days to write. Uh, it's draft one. And I plan to publish the whole thing next month. Oh. And uh, I'm so excited about it because it, it speeds us up. So I was, I was saying earlier, speed's not the, the only criteria, but it is a criteria. So for me, it's given me more room in my day and in my week to write fiction. So, and then I've got time to finish the fiction because I can move parts of that faster. And right now I'm doing the thing I love most, which is going through my first draft and playing with the words and figuring out a more clever way to say this and finessing it. And that's what most people who are wasting their time, just letting, I mean, people say, well, you can just use AI to just crank out a novel. It'll be mediocre, but it'll get published. People are doing that all over the place. They're, they're doing that like crazy. And so that's going to continue. And that doesn't bother me because that's not what I'm doing. I'm building my craft. I'm using it as a tool to help me. And that's how I suggest we all use it. And that is where, when you've got that first draft, that first outline, then you begin pouring in your knowledge of the person you're writing to. Like, I'm thinking about who's going to read these books that I'm writing, these fiction books. I know the kind of person who's going to be reading them because she's me. I mean, this is the kind of stuff I like to read. I know the authors I appreciate. I know the, the way they, they do wordplay way they bring surprises to the story. So I'm bringing that craft. And this is, this is where I get into, um, I think I approach AI as this wonderful tool. It makes us so, more, so much more productive, which makes us so much better craftspeople. And I have my, my three C's that I, I teach my students. And my three C's are, first of all, commitment over chaos. 
In other words, there's chaos going on around us. People are all up in arms about AI, about what it means, and about the presidential election in the U.S., and about this and that. Let them have that. I'm putting on blinders. I'm committed to my writing. Commitment over chaos. Craft over cash. So I love cash. Hear me. I love money. Do with that what you will. They're a consequence of the craft. <laughs> yes, they're, exactly. They're the output, the result of the craft. It's not yeah. the other way around. So yeah. put your craft over the cash. And finally, this is the one that's going to, I think it's going to bite a lot of people. Create over consume. People that are in this market, I have observed because I was one of them for a long time, consume way too much content from other people. Mm-hmm. Way too much. Create more than you consume. Make that your goal. Since I made that flip in my life, my whole life has changed. That's a good one. That's a good one, Ray. Uh, I, I think I'm, I'm going to adopt that, if I may. <laughs> Please do. Yeah. I freely give it to you. You know, what? one of the things that was, I've been very pro-AI. My book last year, before ChatGPT came, it was even talked about. I published the next-gen author, which there uh, behind me. Which is it has a a very small section. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, you have it too. (laughs) It has a very small section about AI. But at this point, it was more like that's something that will be coming soon. I if I published it two months later, that section would definitely have been a little bit longer. But one of the things I was struggling with was figuring out the people that I help writing nonfiction books, they are looking to become known for something super specific, and they need to present novel ideas, something nobody thought about before. Mm. So how can AI tools know about that? So what I've been doing so far myself, and maybe you can can help crack that first knot, but what I've been doing in my next book that's coming out in November, uh, I've been, uh, I, I, I did it the other way around, wrote a quick draft, And then I used AI to make it funnier, (laughs) Uh, to create more variety, come up with better examples. And I can't, so I put, used my book as input and then it, it made it better. Um, Lots of expressions I would never have thought about. Uh, So it was a wonderful tool for that. Uh, But do you think that we could deal with that uh, need for novelty? in yes how how do we deal with that (laughs) um be okay with it what you did is great by the way i want you to know this is a this is a health and energy drink i know it looks like a beer but it's not (laughs) i wouldn't even have blamed you if it was (laughs) nothing against beer but that's not what it was um so i think that what you did is a fully appropriate use of ai uh look i've used it to make things funnier i've used it to make them more unusual i've used it to like in one thing I was writing in my, my book that I just finished, well, I finished the first draft of the book's not finished, but I did say, make the surprise in this chapter a little weirder. Yeah. And it did. Yeah. So uh, think about how we come up with ideas. You know, the people who say, well, you need to come up with all your own ideas, not rely on AI and other stuff. You need to make something up. First of all, we are never going to come up with an idea that's not already been thought of. There is nothing new under the sun. So give up on that. What is different is the way you present it through your personality. And so how does that happen? Well, we read a lot of things in our life. We read books, comic books, 
we hear sermons, classes, we have teachers, we have friends, we watch TV shows, movies, all this input goes into our head and it becomes a confluence of memories and ideas. And when we're sitting down for the creative process, we begin pulling those things out of our consciousness. But we didn't make them up. We're just reassembling stuff we already have in our head. What AI has done has, has collected like the consciousness of the world from the internet. Their goal is to read the entire internet. They haven't quite got there yet, but they're getting close. So they pull all those ideas together. When you ask it a question, it performs that same function your brain does, and it pulls the confluence of all those ideas together. So ask it for long lists of ideas. Ask it for lots of ideas. Then pick the ones that fit the emotion and the intent and the, the destination and the reasons you're writing. Those things are all unique to you. But this tool can make you a lot more creative because I'm telling you, all the quotations, all the jokes, all the illustrations, all the stories that you want to tell are like your little AI that you have in here. And why not reach externally? People talk about having a second brain. Think of AI as the global brain you have access to now, you can tap into. Why wouldn't you? I mean, wouldn't it be kind of silly to? not even take advantage of that and then put your stamp on it? Yes. The answer is yes, Ray, that would be silly. I'm going to start using it that way. <laughs> That's my thought. Yeah. And what is sometimes the alternative is that people don't write and people don't finish that book. So they don't help solve bigger problems. <laughs> yes. So, and how is that better than uh, that? And that, that philosophy, that old philosophy is really based on that. We need to first be skilled writers before we can communicate the help we can provide. How about we turn it around and become great at empathy, discovering and understanding the pain, and then use the tools to convey our solutions for that. That's I I I am definitely favoring the last the latter option option. Beautifully said. I love that. Yes, I'm on board. Yeah. So before we uh, get to the end of this, we need to talk about your new book, new new book, Read This or Die. I love your titles. <laughs> Thank you so what is, much. What is your new book about? It's uh, called Read This or Die, Persuading Yourself to a Better Life. And it's about, ostensibly, it's about my journey through dealing with a diagnosis I got back in 2011 of Parkinson's disease and how I've been dealing with that over the years and how it began to get worse and worse. And then during the pandemic, I, I really just fell apart. I mean, physically, mentally, emotionally, but physically was the beginning of it. Parkinson's is a neurodegenerative a progressive disorder, which means there's no cure for it. There's no fixing it. And it just gets worse over time. Michael J. Fox is an example of what happens to you over time. One thing that there are different outcomes. All of them are horrible, by the way. Um, but I fought that for the longest time, and I fought it in every way I possibly could think of. I did positive thinking. I did diets, exercise, physical therapy, um, all, all mental therapy. And still, I deteriorated to the point that last fall, in the fall of 2022, I, was, I had become more and more unable to drive my car, to walk, to dress myself, to feed myself. I could not be left alone. I was having seizures fairly frequently. I would fall. The number one cause of death for Parkinson's patients is falling. The number two is choking on your own food. 
Um, mm. So it's, it's really a terrible thing. And so this book is about how I learned to deal with that because I learned I had to change my thinking. And the, the reason I'm saying that is this is what the book is really about. It's for everybody. It's really about when you're faced with a reality you can't change and it's really painful. You've got a couple of choices. One is you can just check out. You can say, well, I'm done. This is too painful. I'm just going to die. I had that decision point happen to me. I reached a point in my life where I was in so much pain. I was sitting alone in my living room. I had a bottle of Xanax, a bottle of Oxycontin, and a bottle of Jim Bean. And I thought, this is the easy way out. But then I realized if I do that, my pain will end, but I'll create so much pain for the people I love that I could not do that. So I decided that was not an option. So that left me with either reality has to change and this disease has to be erased or I have to change the way I'm thinking about it. And so after having tried to change reality <laughs> by going to every miracle healing evangelist, every new age guru, every crystal waving, sage burning, uh, supplement selling person I could find, trying every exercise program, everything that I could try that I, that I knew of, motivational speakers, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. As the king of Siam said, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. <laughs> and none of it was working. I realized, you know, I made a living all these years persuading other people to change their behaviors, their thoughts, and become a totally different person, in essence, through my copywriting and selling and marketing skills. Time I turned those skills on myself and brainwashed myself. And so I wrote myself a sales letter that conveyed to me, life is worth living. It's worth living in a certain way. And here's how you must live it if you want to be happy. And the headline of that letter was, read this or die. And I wrote myself an entire sales letter and I changed my life. And I'm still here many years later. So obviously it worked. Now, a lot of people will say, well, is your life perfect now? Heck no. Is your attitude perfect now? I'm human. No, but it's so much better. And the fact is I wouldn't be here if I hadn't written myself that letter. And the funny thing is you mentioned me getting better. And I had a surgical procedure at the end of last year in December of 2022, I had what's called deep brain stimulation surgery. They cut two holes in my head. I ran two wires deep down in the base of my brain. There's a wire running down this side of my head to a little battery pack, little computer pack. It's right here. And it regulates and emits an electromagnetic signal inside my brain, which suppresses the symptoms of the disease. It doesn't stop it. It's still not cured. But while this, while this deep brain stimulator is on, I don't have most of the symptoms of the disease. I take far less medication. I'm so much better off. It's like, it's like it turned the clock backwards eight years or so. Yeah, I saw, that, as I just mentioned before we started recording, uh, I have, I've met uh, Ray every year on social media marketing world in San Diego. And uh, I was so surprised to see you this March because the last time I saw you, you did not look well uh, or, or not, <laughs> not, as, not as well as uh, I, I would have loved you to look <laughs> at least. Uh, thank you. <laughs> I, well, I was not well. And so the great thing is, I was telling the story to a friend of mine. He said, well, I read your book, but there's nothing in the book about the surgery. I said, that's because it hasn't happened yet in the book. Mm -hmm. And he said, well, are, are you sad about that? I said, no. 
because this book proves even if you don't get the miracle solve for the problem, which I feel like this was a miracle. My brain surgeon said, Ray, this is the closest thing I've ever seen in my career to a medical miracle, this procedure, what it yeah. does for people. Yeah. So even if you don't get that though, before I had the miracle, I wrote this book and this book ends on a very positive note with a very encouraging message for anybody who's facing anything tough in your life. It doesn't have to be a big disease like Parkinson's. It could be something a lot, a lot less dramatic. But here's what I know. Life is not a contest of comparing problems and saying, well, my problem is bigger than your problem. Mm. That's not what it's about. Whatever mm. the biggest problem somebody's facing is, is the biggest problem they're facing. Yeah. And whatever the biggest problem somebody's ever faced is the biggest problem they've ever faced. So I would never say to somebody, what? That problem you have, that's not a problem. You'll, you'll get over it. Don't worry about it. It's a small thing. I mean, you want to talk about problems? I got problems. Don't, don't do that. It's whatever somebody's facing right now, it's the hardest thing for them to deal with, is the hardest thing for them to deal with. So be empathetic. But this book will help you if you've got anything in your life you want to change and you've had trouble changing it, then I believe this will help you write your own letter to your own self to change your own life in whatever way you need to change it. And on top of that, it's a pretty good story. Yeah. Yeah. I've read it. I've read it. It's pretty good. Yeah. <laughs> I'm looking forward to reading it. When will it be out? It is available now. You can go to amazon.com or Barnes and Noble or your local bookseller, um, wherever books are sold and you can get a copy. And I encourage you to do so. In fact, you probably want to get three because you're going to want one for yourself and two to give away. Yeah, that's a good idea. <laughs> Very good idea. We should always encourage that, by the way. <laughs> yes. For every book, so, every author. So if it's worth buying, it's worth buying three. Yes, it is. Yeah, good point. Yeah, good point. So apart from um, this book is not your first book rodeo either. So what have you done differently this time in terms of marketing the book? Well, um. Yeah, sure. The first thing that's different is I actually went with a traditional publisher. I've self-published or done hybrid entrepreneurial publishing in my other books. This is the first time I went through a traditional publisher. They paid me in advance, um, and it was a good one. And uh, it's been great working with him. Uh, Harper One is my publisher. I, I love Harper One. It's been very different. It's a much slower experience. When you publish your own books, you can publish them fast, and you just keep most of the money. So there's advantages on both sides. Uh, as far as marketing, what's been different is we, there's a, oh gosh, you're open, you open up a can of worms here. Uh, <laughs> there's, there's a whole system in the world of book publishing that is corrupt uh, in my view. And that is a system where people can buy their way on to a bestsellers list. Mm -hmm. There are very famous bestsellers lists that you can just buy your way onto it. You put in twenty, thirty, forty, fifty thousand dollars, you can get on the bestsellers list. There's there's other bestsellers lists that are well respected, but you can't buy your way onto it, and you can't sell your way onto it. So you might ask yourself, well, if it's a bestsellers list, doesn't that mean you should just make the list of the best-selling books? Mm -hmm. Well, no, apparently not. No. If you're the New York Times, for instance, it's just the books you like. Yeah. I have no problem with that if you call it the the best life. The books we like the best, then yeah. great. Yeah. Say that, put any book you want on there. But don't tell the public it's a bestsellers list 
when it's just the books you like. So I decided not to play the chart game this time. And my goal is to sell as many books as we can every day of every week of every year for the rest of my life. Mm. And that it keeps selling when I'm gone, because this book is about more than just some temporary promotion I'm doing. It's, I think this has value for people 50 or a hundred years from now. And I want it to still be around, still be in print. So we're, we're encouraging people to share it, to write reviews, to talk about it, to have a song. We can discuss ideas that are in the book like we're doing right now. And that's what's been different this time. And it's been so much more rewarding as I get away from the, you know, that whole making the bestseller list thing. There's a lot of pride and caring what other people think tied up in that. Yeah. It's kind of fun to let that go. Yeah. And, and actually most books who then end up on those lists, they're there for a week. Next week, it's something. It's another book, yes. <laughs> but they can yes. put it on the front cover. I, 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 from a business point, that that has very little value, even. And uh, yeah, so I, I completely agree that long-term strategies are often uh, the better way. Yes, I, I believe that's true. Yeah. So Ray, uh, where do you want people to go find out more about you? Um, just go to rayedwards.com. And if you want to know more about the book itself, you can go to readthisordiebook.com. And those would be two good places to start. They'll lead you to all the other places where I am stirring things up and causing a ruckus. Yeah, I wanted to say that you will find Ray uh, almost everywhere. A few of my favorite places is to follow me on his podcast, The Ray Edwards Show. You still have that, right? Oh, yes. And, and on uh, the a copywriting channel on YouTube as well. Yes. Great place for learning uh, about copywriting. Yeah. Ray, thank you so much. And how lovely to see you again. It took a while before we we, uh, <laughs> be, we, we were both available, but um, I guess that's because we're busy. <laughs> we got it done. And I'm so glad we did. Thank you yeah. so much. Yeah, me too. Thank you so much, Ray. <laughs>